Hi everyone, this is Kara Orbell, your host of Going Places. Last week I had the wonderful opportunity of interviewing Laura Naylor Colbert on my show. Um, her story is very unique and interesting. She is the author of Sirens, How to Pee Standing Up, where she documents her experiences being deployed from the National Guard to Iraq in um, 2003. She joined the National Guard at UW-Madison in 2000 and she spent 16 months in Iraq. So her story is very unique and she is so honest and just true to herself. It's It was a wonderful interview and I hope you enjoy. Thanks for listening. So let's start with your experience in the military. Um, let's talk about kind of going from being a college student to going, being fully deployed. Right. So, you know, my whole life I've been all about adventures and, and travel and doing anything out of the norm that I could. And my freshman year of college, I joined the crew team, which is something I never even had heard of prior to, to becoming a Badger. And then that fr same freshman year, I joined the Army National Guard and it was, it was in 2001. So it was exactly six months before September 11th happened. In fact, it was on March 9th of 2001. Um, and again, really for the adventure, for the ability to serve our country, and, um, and then it, paying for college was a bonus for sure. <laughs> um, so when the war started, we still didn't know exactly what our mission would be, what the war was going to be like, because it hadn't even started yet, if it was going to last a long time, if it was going to be easy or hard. And so I really tried to view the deployment as another one of my adventures that I was going to have. And, and when we first started, it was just that. I mean, we got into Iraq and people were waving at us and treating us like we were in a parade and giving us like high fives and thumbs up and, um, and really running to the roadsides to cheer us on. And then within six months, that did a complete 180 and it really, really became a difficult deployment. And we started um, getting a lot of uh, injuries and instead of coming out to cheer us on, they would come out to throw rocks at us and swear at us and give us the thumbs down. And it, it really shifted immensely. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I feel like that kind of tone, you definitely have a major tone shift in your book because you kind of go in the beginning thinking you're very excited. Like it is an adventure. I don't know. Like, I don't want to say you're excited because it is war, but <laughs> you're, you know, it's yeah. something you're like, you've been training for You're you're there. And then you're, you keep getting pushed back. Your home date continually gets pushing, gets pushed back. And I, that's such an important part of your book. And I think like the reader can feel your frustration with that. So. Well, definitely. I'm, thank you for saying that because that was probably the most hellacious part of the de deployment. If we would have had a hard and fast date and an end goal in mind, it would have been a much more manageable deployment. But because they kept pulling out the rug from underneath us and shifting that end date, it, it really felt like it was never going to end. And it started to have a wear and tear on our, our mental health. Yeah, definitely. I loved kind of you definitely when you were there, you had like little idiosyncrasies that like made you and your your almost your friends enjoy it. Like you had a book trade in Kuwait and you just kind of you were very competitive. You played sports and I loved reading about that because that's something that's a perspective you never hear about in war. Right. Yeah. Right. Definitely. Yeah. 
I think that's really cool. Yeah. So what was your favorite book from that book trade? I was actually curious. Oh so funny you ask because I was, I was reading about a, a book a day. Um, wow. when we're in Kuwait, it really was, you just sit and sit because it's 120 to 130 degrees. It's, it, it's just this, it's, it's almost like you're in purgatory and just kind of waiting to find out where you're going next. Um, and you know, we would have to eat and once in a while do missions that were like an hour long. <laughs> so it was a ton of sitting around and chit chatting or reading or whatever. And, um, my favorite book. Okay. I read a lot of James Patterson novels and had never read him before. So just kind of got hooked into him, but I also read, um, sickened and I can't, I'm sorry, I can't remember who wrote it, but it was a true story about a mother who was poisoning her daughter. Oh my and God. then, yeah, because she, there's, there's actually a, an illness associated with that, a mental illness associated with that. And then, um, my, my, favorite book of all time is The English Patient. It's, it's almost like this poetic book that just pulls your heartstrings. And, and that one I got, I got hooked on when I was there. So. Wow. That's so cool. I love that you included that in your book because that's something unique that people wouldn't really know. And I think that's really great. So when you were in Iraq, can you just remind me what your job was i know you worked you worked in the police station right yeah so our jobs shifted throughout the time we were there we started working in the iraqi police stations so we essentially went into these very decrepit uh almost i mean they were essentially war-torn buildings with barely any windows and smoke damage everywhere and they smelled horrible and they were unkempt and we not only helped the Iraqis learn how to be proper police officers and trained the new, the new Iraqi police officers, but we also helped to restore the buildings so they could take some pride in the place that they worked. Um, okay, so we did that. And then we also did a lot of escort missions. Um, I was um, escorting a lot of the UN personnel and US ambassadors, and then we were on call for senators and um, Colin Powell and, and other very high-ranking diplomats. Um, and we did some gate guard duties and uh, trained the Iraqis on how to do driving patrols and stuff like that. So a lot of a lot of police-like action, but we never had to write tickets or do any beat cop type of stuff. <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting. I love, I love your, your descriptions about how you drive, because I think that was one of kind of the craziest moments of your book of just driving and then like hitting things. And that's oh. what, it just sounded crazy. It gave me so much anxiety just from reading it. I mean, yeah, I think, I think I, I eased into that better than I did easing into driving back home. Oh. <laughs> the adventures I had and the things that I did in my, um, in my Toyota Corolla, which is not a very big vehicle, were a little bit crazy considering I um, kept thinking I was still in a Humvee. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I can't even imagine. That's, mm -hmm. that's so funny. And... We're definitely going to talk about kind of your return home because I think that that was a really powerful shift in the book as well. But I wanted to talk about your mantra that you talked about in your book throughout hard times. 
you yeah. said this is God's will. And yeah. how did that impact your time in different circumstances? Well, so I grew up uh, in, a, in a religious family and I went to a Lutheran grade school. And when I got to Iraq, um, I just kept telling myself like there's a greater purpose for me being here and and that's and God's got to have a reason for this right so the hardships I'm going to go through the things I'm going to see it's all part of the process it's all part of making me who I am today and um and when it really 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 got tough I just kept telling myself this is God's will because it was it was like grasping in the dark for something to hold on to that was making our time almost worthwhile or make sense to me. Um, and I know that for people who did not believe in God, they were in an even worse place than I was because to them there really was no point to it all. Yeah. So that's what, that's what really helped me get through. Yeah, that's really important. I think now that I'm reading a lot for school, I learn like spirituality is so mm -hmm. important. And I think it makes you live just like a more fulfilled life. Like I think there are actually statistics in where people who live longer and happier lives have a sense of spirituality in their lives. Right. A higher purpose. Yeah, yeah. definitely. A higher yeah, there's purpose. a lot of research that even talks about having a purposeful life will help you live longer. Even if, you know, I, yeah, people who quit their jobs sometimes die right after because they lose their purpose in life. Wow. Yeah. That's so, that was, that was a really cool part of your book. I really liked that. I think your mindset was so, mm. so powerful throughout your time there. And even when you got kind of discouraged because you couldn't go home and I couldn't even imagine how you were feeling then, but you still kind of had faith in God that you were going to make it and that, that you were going to make it home somehow and like that everything was going to be okay. And right. there's still a reason for you to be there. Right. Yeah. That's really, it's a powerful book. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, of course. Um, I actually have kind of a funny question about basic training because I'm yeah, a runner myself. How <laughs> did you run a five-minute mile? Like you ran a sub-six-minute mile. Yeah, is that craziness? Crazy. <laughs> um, you know, it was all about um, wanting to prove myself to – to the men and to always trying to hold myself to the highest possible standard, not the, not the female standard, but the highest possible standard. Mm -hmm. Um, and when we would go, when we would run, I would have guys tell me that their goal is to beat me. And I was like, Oh, okay, let's bring it on. So let I'll run even faster than you always now. <laughs> um, and when we were running, we were in formation and those drill sergeants would lead our, our platoon of running runners. And, um, here's the funny part at basic training, you have to wear these ugly, ugly glasses and they won't allow you to wear contacts. Yeah. And it was so hot in Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri in the summer and humid that my glasses would constantly fog up. So most of the time I was running blind, trying to stay in sync with the people around me and not even knowing how fast or slow I was going. Like it was all about survival at that point. And I think that's how I did it. You just, you, you, you stop thinking about what you would normally think about on a run by yourself and just start like trying to survive that moment in time. Wow. Definitely a different mindset. I, mm -hmm. when I read that, I was like, how did she do it? Like, that is crazy, but that makes a lot of sense. And I think definitely yeah. mindset, everything's the mind. 
So yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit more about kind of the sexism that you faced. What do you think mm. about now? Like when you look back on it, because there were some guys that said some pretty harsh things. Yeah. So I grew up with two brothers and it wasn't the sexism and the, and the comments, they didn't really ever start and end with the military. It's just, it was just in addition to the things that I've heard all my life. And so again, part of who I am is to prove that I'm not a typical female and you can't put us in a box. You can't think that we're one dimensional creatures. And so, um, when, whenever I was stuck with some of that adversity, I would just do my best to prove them wrong and, you know, lift up that 75 Mark 19 on top of the Humvee and, um, and do as many pushups as the guy could, the guys could, and, you know, run as fast and do as many sit-ups and, and not complain and, and just, just do amazing things at basic training and, and AIT, which was our military police school. And, and that was my goal. And then, and then that carried into the deployment as well. And my team leader, who I absolutely loved, my first team leader, his name's um, Ken Prier. He's, his name is different in the book, but he, um, he told me, he's like, I was really afraid to have a female in my, in my team because I didn't want drama. I didn't want to have to like carry you essentially through this deployment, but he, realized very quickly that I was different and that I was going to be able to, um, carry myself. <laughs> yeah. Do you think you were one of the hardest working people throughout those physical challenges? Um, you know, there's a lot of hardworking people in the military. So I, I wouldn't say I was one of the hardest working, but I was in the top 10% for sure. And I, yeah. I'm just, that's who I am as a person anyways. I will always give everything my all. I, I, my, one of my top um, traits and values is integrity. And so even when you're not looking, I'm going to bust my butt because I want to do what's right. And I want you to know that I have the utmost character and integrity that I can have. I'm the same way. It's, it's almost, it's really hard sometimes too, because you're like, Oh, I want to break the rules, but I can't because then I'd hate myself. <laughs> like I totally understand what you mean with that. I mean, yeah. definitely. And you can almost like your values are so prominent in the book. That's one of the things I admire most about you. You're so like you, you stick to what you believe in, even with your mantra and just throughout the entire experience, you stick to kind of, who you are. Well, thanks. I appreciate that. Yeah, of course. Of course. Um, is there anything you, I don't want to say miss, but is there anything you like think about a lot or miss from, from deployment from your experience? Well, I don't, I don't miss. Um, I think if I were to do it again, I wouldn't be uh, enlisted. I would be an officer. Cause I, I didn't appreciate being told what to do by people who I felt didn't have the proper intelligence to be doing so. Um, I certainly miss the camaraderie with the girls and even the guys. Um, I, I missed being, sometimes miss being a badass and just like throwing my hair in a ponytail and just getting it done. Yeah. You know, when you're, when you're a civilian or even in my position now, there's so much, there's so much at stake when it comes to your presentation and, and who you are and how you look and how you present yourself. And sometimes I just want to be able to put all that aside and just 
throw on some grungy clothes and just get the work done, the same work done, but, but look however I want to look. Yeah. So I, I miss that about the military. Um, and, and you, you could certainly be yourself, um, almost all the time in the military too, unless if some officer was making you stand at, um, or, uh, stand at attention, then you, then you had to do what they said. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And I loved, I, I just cringe at your story where you, you kept calling one of your drill sergeants, ma'am, but she oh. wanted to be called. Yes. What did she want to be called? I can't remember. Call him drill sergeant. Oh, yeah. 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 Can you explain I, that? <laughs> what's that? Can you explain that story? Sure. Sure. So it was during AIT. I definitely sh actually know it was during basic training and I definitely should have known better. You don't call anybody ma'am unless they're an officer. And we didn't have any officers that were, drill sergeants or that we were with every day but the head drill sergeant she was this big woman who um had just the most demanding presence and she told me to get out of her way and I said yes ma'am and I don't know where that came from but she just got super angry at me about it and it was in the morning the sun was rising there was like a red sky behind her it was very ominous <laughs> she uh she told me to get down and start pushing so I did and basic training, I wasn't as strong as I was at AIT. So I got fatigued fairly quickly. And she told me to stand up. And when she said that, I said, yes, ma'am, again, instead of yes, drill sergeant, so that she really let me have it. And she, she just put me through the biggest shame of my life and made everybody else look at me and taunt me. And, and by that time I, she finally let me up. I made sure I said yes, drill sergeant. And I stayed as far away from her as I possibly could the rest of the deployment or rest of basic training. Yeah. That was crazy. I love your <laughs> stories like that. You had so many. For anyone <laughs> listening to this, you have to read this book. It's so good. I recommend it. Well, thanks. Awesome. Yeah. Um, do you still talk? Are you still in contact with your sisters at war? Yes. So, um, there's probably about six or seven of us who have seen each other within the last year or so. Um, in fact, I was lucky enough to just go out to Wyoming, no, sorry, Montana for a trip to an organization called Warriors and Quiet Waters. And if you haven't heard of them, it's an incredible organization that sends troops to go fly fishing in the Montana mm -hmm. rivers. And it's the most breathtaking scenery. They treat you like royalty. And if you're suffering from any sort of post-traumatic stress or anxiety or moral injury, this is the place to go to have healing and wow. to find um, that social connectedness among either fellow troops or just individuals who ultimately care about your healing as well. Um, so I went there with four of the other females that I was deployed with, and it was five days of wonderful food, camaraderie, and fishing. That's amazing. That's mm -hmm. so cool. It's cool yeah. that you get to do that and you still have a connection with the people that you were deployed with. Yeah. Well, thank you. It, it, if you, you know, I get asked once in a while, like what's an organization to donate money to or how, you know, whatever I would highly recommend Warriors and Quiet Waters. Good to know. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, what, when you returned home, what was the best coping mechanism you developed? Oh, that was so, so hard because I didn't expect to suffer from any ailments when I returned home. You know, there's this, this 
assumption that home is this heavenly facade and once you get back everything's going to be just this wonderful life and and nothing could ever go wrong again because you're not getting shot at but life is hard no matter where you are no matter who you are or what stage you're in in life and so when I got home and I had to go like right back into college I didn't have any processing time and I was thrown into classes and roommates who didn't know me who didn't know what I just gone through even if they did how could they possibly relate because they weren't there with me and so I lost that sense of sisterhood and brotherhood and just really felt um, isolated. And it wasn't until about six months later that I met up with my army girls around um, Christmas and realized they, start, they felt the same way. And when I knew that I wasn't alone, I had a sense of solidarity and really came out of my funk for a long time. And then um, that next August, I went to sergeant school, and that's where I started suffering really bad post-traumatic stress because I was in a war um, simulating scenario, and there were bombs going off around me, and um, we were playing with Miles Gear, which is playing, listen to me, we were using Miles Gear, which is like laser tag for military. Mm -hmm. So with all those noises and the bombs, I started having all these intrusive thoughts and actually had my first panic attack of my entire life and didn't know what was happening. And the people around me thought I was having a heat stroke. So they started tearing my clothes off yeah. <laughs> and try to explain through hyperventilations that it was not a heat stroke. Wow. Um, and so that was a very interesting time. And then and then after that panic attack, I really, really fell off the deep end and started having a lot of breakdowns and I could not get out of my depressive state of mind for anything. And it just kept getting worse and worse and worse until, gosh, probably the beginning of October, I um, called my older brother and I said, you have to take me, you have to take me to the VA because I can't even drive. I can't even function anymore. And so then he took me there and I got the help that I needed. And was able to find the person I used to be. That's great. Yeah. That's definitely, I think anyone with anxiety can really empathize with the panic attacks. And I, mm. like, I, I have anxiety and it's so tough. Like I can't even imagine what you went mm. through, but the fact that, I don't know, you found your old self shows mm -hmm. that there are hope and it's probably not like who you exactly your old self but like you have that's a right. grasp of that and that's right really good yeah yeah there you know and there's um this book i'm reading it's called lost connections by johan something um <laughs> i'll find it here in a second but he really talks about how um Johan Hari, H-A-R-I, he, he's really talking about how those social connections are the ultimate healing power and how when, we're, when we are a village and we work together and we, have, we work towards the greater good of everyone, that really helps with our healing. And I think through my education, trying to teach others and then finding that camaraderie through my, my therapist and my, and my fellow veterans, those are the things that really helped me a lot to get, get through what I was, what I was going through. Is that kind of why you lean toward education or did you always know that you wanted to be a teacher? I always, I always knew that from the second I was like 
a, a student myself, first and second grade, I always said I wanted to be a teacher. And then I got to college and I absolutely loved molecular biology. I thought that, that I really wanted to go study cells. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. And I was going to do pre-med and, and all that fun stuff. And then I realized I didn't want to work indoors and be in a lab all the time. And so then I looked, turned back to my passion of teaching and was like, wait a second, why don't I become a FIA teacher? You know, there's the stigma against FIA teachers, like um, those who can't do teach, those who can't teach, teach PE, you know, or whatever. And I didn't want to be that person. But at the same time, I'm like, why am I letting this, this stigma stop me from doing something I'm not, I know I'm going to love. And so that's what brought me to where I ended up and I taught adventure ed, which was, which was the most amazing position I could have because for the first month and a half of the semester, we worked on community building and trust building. So I got to create a family out of every single class that I had. And, and I got to watch them grow and evolve and learn from each other. And then I got to take them camping and caving and rock climbing and working on ropes courses. And it was just this wonderful, wonderful opportunity as a teacher. That's awesome. I love all of my FIAD teachers. I think they were the most interesting teachers I've ever had. They were so <laughs> cool. I, I loved my outdoor adventure classes too. I think I think cool. those, I still look back on them. Like they were like the highlights of high school. But mm -hmm. actually I wanted to talk about that because I know you got your master's in experiential learning and my freshman yeah. year of college was completely out of the classroom, traveling to different nonprofits. I camped in the wilderness for 23 days. Like that's oh, totally so experiential learning and I grew so much from it. Yeah. Yeah, there's something super spiritual about being in the woods for a long period of time and completely disconnecting from civilization and the world that we know it. When time becomes a thought or a word and not a thing that we live by anymore, that's that's super powerful. Yeah, I, I miss uh, it every day. <laughs> I, know. I know, I can't wait to take my kids into the woods for long periods of time to see how they how they evolve as a human being as well. Yeah, there's so much research too about children going, like spending time in nature and it, it reduces ADHD, I think, and it, it just has so many positive effects. And I feel like people are so disconnected from that. Yes, um, yeah. I wrote a, I actually just wrote a, pod, or a, a podcast. I wrote a blog just about that exact same thing. I'll have to read it. You give me so <laughs> many good book recommendations and readings. I'm so excited. <laughs> Well, good. I got a, I got a ton. Let me know if you want yeah, more. <laughs> definitely. I'm, I'm a big reader. I feel like no one my age, like we're few and far between. But yeah. Everyone I have to show, they always like give me so many book recommendations and I always read everything. It's amazing. Oh, cool. Yeah. yeah. I, I love to read and I, I'm, I'm an avid reader. I actually do audible a lot. So, um, I get to listen to my books when I run or work out or paint a house or whatever I do. Yeah. <laughs> Have you read David Noggin's um, book? Yes, I have. Okay. I read it last spring. He's really good. And I just talked about this on another show I had, but I love him. I think he's, he's crazy, but he's amazing. I know it. I know he, yeah, I, had, I listened to his audiobook, which he actually, um, he doesn't read it. His writer reads it, but he, they do interviews. It's almost like a podcast slash audiobook at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm um, What were you going to say? <laughs> um, I was say, speaking of, I have finished my audio version of my book. I read it myself that's and it should be out um, this year yet. So that's really exciting. That's very exciting. That's awesome. So for, 
yeah, for the listeners who don't like to read, but instead listen, it will be available soon, hopefully. <laughs> That's actually my boyfriend. I was like, you need to read this book. And he was like, I'll read the, I'll listen to the audio book. And I was like, oh, I don't know about that. So that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, tell that. <laughs> I will definitely tell him. Um, let's talk about your book writing process. I think that's a good, yeah. good transition. How kind of, why did you decide to write your book? And how did you have all of these memories like on yeah. hand? Yeah. So when I was deployed, I had a journal with me and I journaled every day. And if I forgot, I, I would never really get more than five days out and then go back and have to try and remember what I did. But it was through that journaling that I was able to have such detailed um, stories and remember a lot of the, the crazy stories that I would normally have forgotten. And it, I journaled so much and we were there for so long that I actually filled two entire journal books fill, um, full of memories. Wow. Um, so yeah. And while I was deployed, I was like, wait a second, this is quite a story. Like this is crazy what we're going through right now. And so ever since my deployment, I thought I was going to write about it. Well then, you know, you get back and life takes, takes over. And, um, in 07, I lived in England and there was somebody there. His name was Patrick Fairbanks. He's actually from Minnesota, but was over teaching abroad as well. I was teaching physical education in England. It's really funny. I often get asked if I taught English in England. In England. <laughs> <laughs> um, so anyways, he was really instrumental in getting me going. And so since I was living there alone in my own little flat, sometimes at night I would take out my journals and I would convert them into a Word document and then elaborate on them and make them a little bit more civilian friendly. And then I tinkered on it on and off thereafter. But it wasn't until 2014, 15, when I, it must have been 15 or 16, when I, when I signed on with Warrior, um, Warrior, uh, Warriors Publishing Company. Oh my gosh, how am I getting that wrong right now? My editor. <laughs> and um, and when that happened, I was in the midst of applying for new jobs, and I was having my uh, second baby, and so it was just also not a very opportune time. But funny enough, once I moved to Apaca, where I currently live, and had my third child and was working as a, an administrator at a middle school, that's when I finally found the time to write my book. Mm -hmm. um, so I would write at night once the kids went to sleep or um, during nap times on weekends. And I crammed as much in when we were driving as possible. My husband would drive and I would sit there with the laptop on my lap and, and write as much as I could. And so it was, it was arduous, but therapeutic at the same time. Yeah. Was it difficult going back through all of those memories? You know, it depended. There were some really interesting things that, that hurt a lot. And one of them was, um, so we had a video recorder when I was there and when I was rewriting, we had, um, we had John Cena with WWE at that time do a, like a poem for us. And then mm -hmm. David Letterman came to visit and he gave a little speech. So I wanted to get their exact quotes correct. So I went back and watched those videos and I cannot tell you after watching those videos, how emotional I had become because it was like, I was right back there. Mm -hmm. And then um, another thing that really pulled at my heartstrings was um, when I was rewriting about some of my worst post-traumatic stress episodes, I would just sit 
in my office and just tears would stream down my eyes and I just keep writing and writing, but it was so hard. And then the other, I, I wanted to double check about, um, the, I have a story about a time I had to clear a house in between these major roadways. And, um, you know, I was, I was the GI Jane kicking the door open with the weapon or with my pistol in one hand, the flashlight in the other yelling clear, you know, and, and I wanted to make sure I had that story correct. So I went back into my journal and made sure I was saying it correctly. And when I opened that journal and started reading that story with my own handwriting, that really got me too. Wow. Yeah, definitely. I'm very impressed that you could journal that much. I think that's, that takes so much more dedication than people realize. Cause I tried to write every day when I was in Spain and I couldn't even do it. Like that's so that's amazing that you could just write, even if you had a bad day, like mm. that's great. Yeah. yeah. But when you think about it in Spain, there's still a lot of life to live and things to experience. Yeah. And I'm sure you were pulled in a lot of directions at war. You go to war, like you go out for your mission and you come back to your bunk. And then like, it's not like you can go out afterwards or it's not like you can go socialize. I mean, we found ways to do it, but it doesn't have, it's not like you're in this beautiful foreign country of things that you want to experience. Yeah, that's very true. That's true as well. Um, what gave you inspiration for your title? <laughs> so um, that Patrick Fairbanks, God bless him. He, <laughs> he's the one who was like, you got to talk about peeing. You got to say something <laughs> about peeing in the title because that's a hilarious part of your book. Yeah. And so that's really where it derived from. And, um, and then when my editor and publisher, um, got a hold of it, she was not thrilled about having P in the title. So she's like, how about we come up with something else? And, and I, and this was after I had already done all of the hard work of writing the book and we were like in the finishing touches. And I was like, Oh, I didn't even know that this was on the table. Like this was a thing. I thought it was always the title. So it really threw me for a loop too, but we compromised and have kind of two titles. She really likes Sirens because as a woman at war, you are kind of like a siren coming out of the water and the men look and the men stare and the men treat you differently. And especially the Iraqis, they really just kind of froze and couldn't believe that there was a female soldier, right? Um, And then also um, the sirens can be indicative of being a military police officer, even though we didn't have sirens on our Humvees, you know, sirens and police are go hand in hand. And then um, when you talk about my post-traumatic stress or when I talk about post-traumatic stress, it's almost like there were sirens going off in my head. Like I, I couldn't get out of that, that noise and that drone of just constant um, dread, really. So there was kind of three different symbols that we could pull with that title. Yeah. How many Iraqi men asked to marry you when you were there? I think at least four or five. (laughs) (laughs) And one of them, I don't even think I talked about. I was in front of a mosque and this guy just walked up to me. He says, will you marry me? I was like, how, how is that a thing? (laughs) Women really say yes to that because (laughs) (laughs) this is not going to happen here. Yeah. That's a huge cultural difference. I interviewed a girl from Pakistan and she was like, I find it so weird that people date. Like, I don't, I don't get that you have a boyfriend. That's so odd to me. And I was like, oh my gosh, it's so funny. The different cultural just differences that just leave you with your mouth just wide open. I know it. <laughs> and my, my all-time favorite of all, my all-time favorite was when 
the infantry they were, were in our, <laughs> yeah, yes, yes. They were in our police station helping to pull security and they would go out, they would go outside of the wire and we weren't allowed to. And one time they went out and came back and they were just laughing hysterically. And they said, Hey, that guy over there who owns that shop, he wants to marry you and he's willing to trade us a satellite phone and a scooter for you. <laughs> and I, so, yeah. So I told my husband, that's my bride price. <laughs> That's so funny. That's amazing. That's, I know. That's just funny stories. You just look back and cringe. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about your travels because you actually went a lot of places after you got back from the military. So where I know you lived in England, but you also backpacked Europe and you went to Honduras. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so I came back in 04 and really pushed through to get done with school as quickly as possible. And I graduated in May of 06. Um, in fact, this is a fun fact. It was four hours before my twin brother, who was in school the whole time. <laughs> so my Not competitive, competitive ranking. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> okay, so... After I graduated, I had some money in the bank from my experience in Iraq, because what, what are you going to spend your money on when you're in Iraq? Not a whole lot of money or not a whole lot of anything because you're not going to ship stuff to Baghdad, you know? Mm -hmm. So I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to live the best life I can possibly live in the year of 2006. So I dubbed that the year of Laura oh. and traveled as much as I could. So I had a great cousin who lived in Florida. I stayed there for two weeks. Um, a friend of mine and I um, drove through a whole bunch of states and up and down the East Coast. Um, I went to Honduras with two other friends because um, my friend Hannah, her older sister works for the State Department and was living in Honduras. And Hannah had actually already been there for two weeks. And so my friend Rachel and I met her. And I talk about both Rachel and Hannah in the book, which is funny. Um, uh, Rachel and I met Hannah down in Honduras and then we borrowed her sister's car and we went all over Honduras, which was so, so fun. We broke down, <laughs> we broke down in one small little tiny town. And I think it was 20 bucks to get the car fixed, you know, oh my gosh, and yeah. other time we went to go buy peanut butter and we bought it and walked out of the store and opened it up. And there was a finger like dip taken out of the peanut butter and the, <gasps> the foil top was off. Oh and we went back and we were trying to explain to her what had happened. <laughs> in our broken Spanish. <laughs> we didn't win that case. She thought that she was yeah. her money back. Um, so anyways, that was a really fun trip. And then, yeah, I planned a whole backpacking trip through Europe. I think I went to 11 countries. Um, and I, I traveled with a good friend named Ashley, um, another cousin named Jenny. And then, um, and then I met a, one of my army girls in Berlin who lived there at the time. And just really traveled around by myself a lot. And it was, it was one of the most incredible experiences that I've had in my life because I, it, again, kind of like going into nature, it was super spiritual and it really taught me a lot about myself and my willingness to go outside of my comfort zone and do crazy and fun things. Um, and, and to just how egocentric the United States is and how much more there is to know and love and learn from the, from the world. Definitely. And then I got home and, um, actually when I was, sorry, when I was traveling through Europe, I was in England and I visited a friend that was from my hometown and his girlfriend at the time just so happened to be another 
Iraq war veteran. And she talked me into applying to this website. I think it's called Global Education. And that's actually who called me a month after I got home and offered me a job in England. Wow. And um, I might have had a few too many adult beverages. So I don't even remember what I put on the application. <laughs> <laughs> and I got the job and moved to England. Yeah. And um, was only there for seven months. I actually got a permanent job there because originally I was only there for somebody who was on maternity leave okay. and then um, started dating a guy who lived in Fargo, who I met when I was in college and we stayed in touch. And so from England, I moved to Fargo, North Dakota for just over a year. <laughs> oh God. Isn't that pretty, <laughs> pretty terrible. It's worse than Wisconsin for winters, isn't it? Yeah. It's, it's pretty desolate. It, it did not suit me well. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned that briefly in your book, but I was like, that's, that's an interesting story. <laughs> yeah, I worked for an organization. I loved the organization. It was a company that catered or helped people with special needs. Okay. Um, so they did some in-home care. They also had their own homes where the people lived. And then um, my job there was to be the activities director for 340 clients, all ages, wow. all ability levels. And so it, it was super fun to plan for them. Um, but they gave me a job to work from home. And my boyfriend that lived there loved to hunt. And um, I don't love to hunt. So mm -hmm. I was alone a lot. And that did not bode well for my mental health. Yeah. Yeah. But then you're back. Now you're back in Wapaka, living uh, life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, how do your students respond to you? Like, do they know that you're a veteran? Like, are they kind of scared of you? Um, <laughs> um, so it varies. I, when I had high school students, there was a lot of respect from those high school students. Um, once they found out who I was and what I'd been through. And then I, I gave my Iraq presentation to all of my students. And after that, there was even an, more of an understanding of who I was as a human being and where I came from. Um, there, Wapaka, so that was when I lived in Madison. Um, and now Wapaka, it's a very um, patri um, patriotic town. And so anybody who's a veteran is, is, is highly respected. I'm a six foot tall female anyways, with a pretty strong presence. So the, the kids respect me regardless of knowing I'm a veteran or not. But once they know, it helps a little bit. But they're still so young and they're still so... Um, um, I, I don't want to use the word egocentric again, but that truly describes how they are. They don't really think outside of themselves a whole lot. And so I think they respect me because more of my size than what I, who I am and what I do. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. That's awesome. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think of if I have any more questions. I think your story is so interesting. And after reading your book, I was just so fascinated with what happened after it was like, you should write a second book about coming home and, and your travels. I mean, that's so cool that you got to live abroad and teach. I mean, mm -hmm. do you miss England? Do you want to go back? Oh, always, 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 always. Um, so I actually journaled when I was backpacking through Europe too. And I could definitely write about a, a book about that experience. Yeah. Um, but not until I'm done being a leader in the community I live in because um, I might throw myself under the bus with a few stories. Um, <laughs> um, and yeah, I, I have a very, um, 
high affinity for Europe and for anywhere really for traveling in general. And it brings me so much joy. And um, I definitely want to get back to a place in my life where I can continue to travel often. My husband and I, we took a trip and we went to four or five countries in Europe together. Um, but I definitely want to um, share those experiences with my kids as much as I can when they're older too, because it's just so valuable. That's great. Yeah, I got a little glimpse. I studied abroad, but then it got cut short because of COVID. So I'm just itching to travel again. I am sure. Yeah. yeah. You got to take advantage of it as much as you can. Definitely. It's, you know, you can always make money. You can't always find time to travel. And I feel like COVID is, that proves that point, right? I mean, you just never know what's going to happen in your life. So take advantage of it when you can. Definitely. Did you have that mindset? I feel like people are just developing that mindset now, but did you have that mindset when you were kind of when you got back from being deployed? Yeah. And here's the funny thing is I'm really, I'm really money conscious. I, I was a single woman who bought my own house in Madison, Wisconsin, you know, before I turned 30. And I feel like that's a pretty cool feat to be able to do that. And like, I lived a debt-free life. I didn't have credit card debt, you know, like it's, at any rate, um, so I, I, I do think like, I, or I do feel as though the military afforded me a lot of those um, um, benefits that I wouldn't have otherwise had. Um, but knowing who I, who I was before that, like even in high school, I had the choice of buying a new car or going to Spain with the Spanish club. And I chose going to Spain. And, you know, just like I said, when I got back from Iraq, or sorry, when I graduated from college, I could have put that money into something, or I could go and take advantage of this time when I knew I didn't have a boyfriend, I knew I didn't have kids, I knew that I was free to do whatever I wanted to do. And that was the time of my life that I could take advantage of having some extra money and of, of the time that I had. That's great. And you had that adventure. I'm, I'm excited. I, I hope you do write that book. I read it. <laughs> well, I'm a big fan. Yeah. I, I have a whole other book in my head about being a principal too, because there are some <laughs> hilarious stories that have come out of that too. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. I mean, I think I don't think anyone likes middle school. And I think we all look back and cringe. So it's kind yeah. of funny because you you kind of talk about that at the beginning of your book, like reaching looking for a vape in the toilets or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's crazy. And I think, I think, I don't know, it's very powerful how your experiences in Iraq and traveling have kind of made you who you are. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I have a higher level of empathy. I understand mental health disorders. I understand cultural differences. You know, I always try to see other people's perspectives in, the, in life. Um, when I was at Madison West high school um that's when I when I was doing you know, students I started working with a lot of students of color and I just really wanted to understand them better so I read a ton of books um to help me better empathize with them and and be able to speak to them the way that they wanted to be spoken to instead of the way that I'm used to speaking so definitely helps a lot in in anything that I do to have the experiences that I've had that's great. And I think we need that with teachers nowadays. I mean, I think that's so important. And I feel like people are just kind of not exploring it now, but I feel like it's becoming so prevalent to do the research and learn about 
people who are different from you, whether they're in your class or whether they're across the world. I think it's so important. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And that's actually how I started getting presentations and sharing my experience because I did not feel like I connected with anybody when I went back to college and I just said, Hey, you guys, I'm going to do this thing on this night. Come so that we can better understand each other. And that really set the tone for hundreds more presentations down the road. Wow. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being on my show. Oh, wait, I have one more question. I forgot to ask yeah, you. I ask everyone this question and it's kind of dorky, but it kind of gets your brain thinking. So if you could travel anywhere in the world, where would you not go? Um, hmm. Where would I not go? Mm-hmm. I would not go to the super cold part of the ocean. <laughs> like, like a thousand feet down. No, thank you. Mm-hmm. No, seriously, there really isn't a place I wouldn't want to go because you can learn something from everybody. I mean, what I enjoy going to Saudi Arabia and wearing a full head to toe burqa and having to follow a man and have them speak for me, I wouldn't enjoy that at all, but I'd want to experience it and try to understand why the women put up with it. Right. Yeah. Um, would I want to go back to Iraq? 100% I want to go back to Iraq. I want to drive the same streets. I want to show my kids where I worked. I want to see what it looks like and enjoy the f- delicious food and the hospitality from these selfless individuals that live there. But do I want to go right now? Not really. Um, wow, that's just a really, really great question. Thank you. That was a good answer. I feel like it shows your just open-mindedness to all cultures and all perspectives. That's so powerful. (laughs) Thanks. Yeah, of course. Well, thank you so much for being on my show. I, I'm floored with just your book and your experiences. So you are such an inspiration and thank you so much. Thanks, Karen. I can't wait to read your book someday about all your travels and all your, (laughs) because I'm sure they're coming. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah.